I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week, we're looking at the case of murdering cousin duo Kenneth Bianchi and Angelino Buono, better known as the Hillside Stranglers. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Uh, fair warning. This is rough. No eating. No eating. H- hug your family members. Like... Uh, have have your, your pet or cuddly toy close. Yeah. Maybe take a shot. I don't know. Just like... Look, I suggested this case, and I really... I apologize, because it's... I hate you. It's dark shit. <laughs> so, welcome. <laughs> Hope you enjoy yourself here this week. I don't even know anymore. Um... So it's Friday afternoon. Yeah. We've lost our minds a little bit. We've already recorded one episode today. This is number two. So you know yeah. it's gonna be interesting. Um yeah. <laughs> so Kenneth Bianchi was born in Rochester, New York in May 1951. His mother was a sex worker with addiction problems, and he was quickly given up for adoption. He was adopted by Nicholas Bianchi and, I'm going to say her last name wrong, so bear with me, Francis Scioliono Bianchi. Um, They adopted him in August 1951 and was their only child. Francis described uh, Kenneth as being a compulsive liar as soon as he learned to speak, and he also suffered from seizures as a child. Bianchi was also prone to fits of rage from quite a young age. And at the age of 10, he was diagnosed with a passive aggressive personality disorder, um, which is no longer recognized as that. a disorder on its own. Yeah. Um, it's more of a, I think, kind of a symptom of other personality disorders. That would make sense. Uh he was described as having above average intelligence, but also as being an underachiever. Uh, he moved schools twice due to behavioural problems and was described as being lazy by both his mother and his teachers. Cool. Um, upon graduating from high school, Bianchi married his childhood sweetheart, but the union only lasted eight months before his wife left him. Um, Bianchi attended college to study psychology, but dropped out after just one semester. Um, He then found work as a security guard, but spent more time robbing the properties he was hired to protect than actually protecting them, which led to him frequently being on the move up until 1975, when a 24-year-old Bianchi made the move to Los Angeles and teamed up with his cousin, Angelo, who at the time was 41. Angelo Anthony Buono Jr. was born in Rochester, New York in October 1934. He was the son of Italian migrants. His parents divorced when he was young and he moved to California with his mother Jenny. Buono was trouble from the start. From a young age he had an interest in sex and frequently boasted to his classmates about raping their female classmates. Great. Wow. Uh, We don't know as much about him as we do about Bianchi, but 
By the time the cousins were united in LA, Bono had a pretty long rap sheet, including rape, assault, failure to pay child support, and grand theft auto. So what we're saying is, not a great guy, this guy. Yeah, two two not great guys together. Don't you love that? Yeah. What could go wrong? Absolutely nothing. Um, so they cancel each other out, right? Yeah, that's how that's how it works. Law of Everyone averages. Everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> Great short episode. It's only literally three minutes long. We're done, right? Oh, yeah. that that's great. I can go and eat now. I know, right? It's lunchtime. It's well past lunchtime. Um, huh, alas, nope. Um, once Bianchi moved to L.A., the cousins wasted no time in furthering their criminal exploits. Now, uh, most of the sources that we read about this case say that the cousins got some girls to pimp out, and they go on to describe these girls as teenage prostitutes. Now, we don't roll like that, so let us be very clear. They did not find some girls to, quote, pimp out. They kidnapped two vulnerable teenage runaways, held them captive, and forced them into sex work. There is a big difference. Yeah, and while we're on this subject, there is no such thing as an underage or child prostitute. Because a child cannot consent. Paying to have sex with someone under the age of consent is rape. You are paying to rape a child. I will die on this hill. Yeah. And like, if you look into this case, because it's from the 70s, almost all the literature, all the documentaries on YouTube, all the this, all of that, they're all full of... A Disgusting. Like, really problematic language and out-of-date references and just like, it's... That in and of itself makes this case f so frustrating to research. But um, yeah. uh, know that we will do our best to translate into the appropriate terminology wherever possible and to point out the bullshit of society when necessary. It angers me because the blame is always put on these women like the less dead. It's always like, oh, they were prostitutes. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, who cares? They were sex workers. I don't care if they, I don't care who they were. They were brutally they were abused. They were people. They were exploited. Who, it doesn't matter who they were. They did not deserve that. No, exactly. Um, so, with all that said, um, there isn't too much information out there about the two victims, um, Sabra or S Sabra Hannon and Becky Spears. What we do know is that the two were forced into sex work, but Becky Spears eventually managed to escape and met a lawyer named David Wood, who was suitably appalled by her situation and helped her to escape. Um, Sabra Hannon managed to escape soon after that. Yeah, and in case it's not clear by the implication they were also abused by Bianchi and Bruno yeah. as well as being forced into sex work. Yeah. They were held captive. Yeah. No. Uh, the cousins weren't very happy with losing the two girls and the income they made from them. 
So they impersonated police officers and quickly kidnapped another girl to take her place. Great. But again, we don't really know much about her or what became of her, unfortunately. In autumn of 1977, they also met a sex worker named Deborah Noble, and she sold them a trick list, which is a list of men that she and other sex workers knew who met with them and, you know, sex workers in the areas that they worked. And this list was delivered by Deborah's friend, Yolanda Washington. Now, we're not entirely sure how, but Bianchi and Buono discovered that this so-called trick list was false. It was just something Deborah had made up to sell to the cousins. Um, they were furious that they had paid for it and then weren't going to make any money off of it. But rather than, you know, get over it and find jobs that didn't involve exploiting vulnerable women, uh, they decided to take their frustrations out on Yolanda Washington. Um, and on October 17th, uh, 1977, 19-year-old Yolanda's body was found on the hillside of the Forest Lawn Cemetery near the Ventura Highway. Um, now, Forest Lawn Cemetery is, like, the place where all the celebrities are buried. Um, oh... And Ventura Highway is the 101. It goes um, across the San Fernando Valley. And there are a lot of hills in that area as well. So uh, you can see hills and stuff from the highway, basically, when you're driving through it. Um, which will not mean anything to most people listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> and barely means anything to me, even having lived out in L.A. for three years. But uh, just to try to give some context. Just gives a bit of background yeah. to the context. Um, I will be jumping in with all the requisite uh, freeway numbers. And don't ask me why in L.A. we say the blank whatever number freeway or the five, the ten, the 405. I don't fucking know. It's weird. Nobody knows. It's just a thing. Um, LA's weird. <laughs> you can, That's the takeaway from you this. You can fucking say that again. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, on the hillside, outside Forest Lawn Cemetery, near Ventura Highway, um, detectives determined that her body had been cleaned before she was dumped at the site. There were faint marks around her neck, wrists, and ankles where she had been tied with rope, and her cause of death was strangulation. And she had also been sexually assaulted. The last person to see Yolanda alive, other than Bianchi and Bruno, was a music store owner named Ronald Lemieux. He later testified that he'd seen two men flash police badges before handcuffing Yolanda and forcing her into the back of an unmarked car. Other than Ronald's sighting of two plainclothes officers flashing badges, the police didn't really have a lot of information to go on. There's no forensic information at the site because her body being cleaned and then just dumped. And of course, it's the 1970s when all vulnerable young people, especially women, were just runaways who the police didn't really care about. 
when dealing with a serial killer, police are essentially playing a game of cat and mouse. They need to find the killer before they strike again, but they also need more information and evidence, um, whether it's circumstantial or forensic. And to get that, they have to wait until the killer strikes again, unfortunately. And actually, I was I was watching a documentary about this uh, yesterday, and one of the detectives was kind of like, unfortunately, in this situation, what you hope for is another victim because it gives you more information. Yeah, I like. I know we give the police a lot of shit because usually they deserve it, but in cases like this, you... It's There's no information, and if it's a serial killer, well, firstly, you need three victims for it to be serial killer. But you know, the body has been cleaned. They've obviously taken great care to make sure there's no trace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, dumped in a cemetery or near a cemetery. There's there's n- there's not there's much really to go nothing on. Nothing to go on. Yeah, exactly. Um. <coughs> But uh, the LAPD wasn't waiting for long because just 13 days after Yolanda was really murdered, Bianchi and Bono struck again. Their second victim, well, second murder victim that we know of kind of thing, um, was 15-year-old Judy Miller. Judy had been subject to the same horrific treatment as Yolanda. She had been bound and had ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. And she had also been beaten and raped before being strangled. Judy's body was found on the driveway of a house in La Crescenta. Yeah, or Is that right? it's probably either La Crescenta or La Crescentia. Either one. Okay. Um, either way. It is a neighborhood about 12 miles north of downtown Los Angeles and reported reportedly quite a middle-class area. Um, and after discovering the body on the morning of November 1st, 1977, the homeowner covered her body in an attempt to give her some dignity and ensure that, you know, the neighbor kids didn't see a body uh, and then called the police. And just like Yolanda... Judy's body had been cleaned before she was uh, left in the driveway. And the residents, as far as we could find, were completely unrelated to Judy and her murder. It was just a convenient dump site, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Um, However, unlike in Yolanda's case, this time police were able to find a tiny piece of forensic evidence. They found a piece of fluff on her eyelid. Although that didn't really help them all that much. But at least they found something, right? Um, Yeah. When she was eventually identified as Judy Miller, police found that she was a high school dropout and runaway who had turned to sex work to survive. Judy was last seen on October 31st on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Bystanders said that she was approached by two men dressed in plain clothes who flashed police badges handcuffed her and forced her into the back of their car and then drove off. So with most serial killers, there's like a cooling off period between murders and that gap eventually does get smaller and smaller. There can be a period of like months, even years Mm -hmm. after the first kill before they strike again. But the high that they get from murdering 
that gets less and less with each time. Um, hence the cooling off period gets smaller and smaller. But with Bianchi and Bono, there's no real cooling off period. There was only two weeks between Yolanda and Judy's murders. And then just five days after they brutally murdered 15-year-old Judy, the pair struck again. Um, on November 6th, the body of Alyssa Lissa Caston was found near the Chevy Chase Country Club in Glendale. And Glendale is um, a, t <laughs> a town in uh, the San Fernando Valley. So it's like over the hill from Hollywood, um, north of the city of L.A., and uh, it's near like Pasadena and it's uh, Glendale, Pasadena. Those areas are quite nice, like um, parts of the valley with some very, very, very like rich residences. And, um, you know, I'd say upper middle class to upper class types of areas. There's definitely like a shock value they're going for as well mm -hmm. in, you know, leaving the bodies in sort of middle and upper class neighborhoods. Because mm -hmm. I don't know for certain, but I'm assuming, you know, that sort of thing doesn't happen here. Yeah. Well, that especially because you've got like this perception of downtown L.A. as this really like horrible nasty violent place and like uh you know south central and compton skid row yeah skid row, like uh, everything like that and like i mean even though we're talking about the 70s that hasn't changed like that's still the perception and mm. and it's true to a certain extent like th these places have a lot of crime Whereas you go to the valley, you're safe. You're in the valley, you're in the suburbs, whatever. Like it's, you know, it's strip malls and it's it's country clubs. And like, it's a very different what, world. What is a strip mall? A shop retail uh, park is what you guys call them. Basically, I'd say a strip mall is a, a, a retail shopping center that has one shared parking lot or car park. Um but has multiple you know, different shops. You know in Annie's Land where the Big Morrisons is? That's one, yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like a retail pack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I always wondered, like, what the hell is a strip mall? It because it's like... doesn't sound like what it is. Well, like, strip malls seem... Uh, strip joints seem to be, like, a bigger part of American culture than they are of British culture. <laughs> but then, remember, I grew up in, like, a rural area, so... Just we don't have any kind of clubs. <laughs> and so I was like, strip mall? Is that like a bunch of like strip joints together? Yeah, it's just like, it's like your Hooters and your Gentleman's Exclusive and your like the, the varying levels of, of like naughty places just all lined up together. <laughs> anyway, we were in Glendale. Lisa Caston had been seen the night before leaving uh, the restaurant where she worked. Just like Judy and Yolanda, she had been approached by two men impersonating police officers who had then handcuffed her and uh, bundled her into the back of their car. So, as well as being a waitress, Lissa was also a professional dancer and member of the LA Knockers, 
all-female dance troupe. She had no history of drug or addiction problems, and she wasn't a runaway or a sex worker. What's really sad and what really annoys the fuck out of me about this is that because Lissa wasn't a sex worker, she's referred to by the police, the media, and pretty much everyone else as the first innocent victim of the Strangler. Mm. Now, as I said earlier during a smaller rant on this, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a trope as old as time, and there's always this implication that if a woman is a, is a runaway, a sex worker, a struggle with addiction, even single mothers, um, that she's somehow not innocent and almost, like, deserves it, mm-hmm. and they are, like, literally the less dead. Yeah. But when Lissa is is murdered, everyone starts talking about innocent victims and that's when people begin to take notice of the fact that there's a serial killer on the loose. Go figure. Unfortunately, it took three other murders of perfectly innocent human beings to get there. Mm. Yeah. They are just as innocent you know, being a sex worker, having addiction issues, having mental health issues, anything like that, does not mean that you suddenly deserve to be murdered. No, of course not. Uh, now, it's worth noting that at this point, the police and press believe that there was only one murderer. They didn't realize that they were dealing with a duo. Um, at some point in early November 1977, Bianchi and Bono had attempted to abduct a 24-year-old woman named... Catherine Laurie Baker. They had approached her, flashed police badges, and some reports say they handcuffed her. Others say that they just searched her. Whether they handcuffed her or not, when they were searching her belongings, they found a photo in her purse of her and her father. None other than uh, character actor Peter Laurie, known for his roles in films such as Fritz Lang's M., in 1931, in which he played a serial killer, as well as roles alongside Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca in the 1940s. Um, So upon realizing that she was the daughter of a Hollywood actor, the duo released Catherine unharmed, but it is widely believed that they planned to torture and murder her as they had done to Yolanda, Judy, and Lissa. Um, When they were finally arrested, Catherine would identify them as the men who stopped her and flashed police badges at her. On November 20th, some young boys were searching a trash heap in the hills near Dodgers Stadium, uh, looking for anything valuable or useful, when they found the decomposing bodies of two girls. The girls were eventually identified as 12-year-old Dolores Ann Dolly Sapedia and 14-year-old Sonia Marie Johnson. They had last been seen boarding a bus on Colorado Avenue on their way home on November 13th. Due to the level of decomposition, it was determined that they'd been abducted and murdered shortly after they were last seen. And despite the state of their bodies, pathologists confirmed that they'd both been bound at the wrists, ankles and neck. And they'd also both been sexually assaulted. So, same MO. Once again. Yeah. So but the victims are getting younger, younger and younger. Yeah. And now there's two at yeah. a time, which is quite an escalation. So the same day that Dolly and Sonia were discovered, a third body was discovered in the hills between Eel Rock and Glendale. 
20-year-old Catherine Weckler was an honor student at the Arts Center College of Design. Uh, like the previous victims, Catherine had been bound at uh, the wrists, neck, and ankles. She had been violently beaten and raped, um, and her body was covered in bruises. But unlike the previous victims, the cousins had also experimented on Catherine. She had two puncture marks on her arm, uh, but she had no history of drug use, nor were there any drugs in her system. And tests eventually showed that Catherine had been injected with household cleaners. That that just shows, like, just how sadistic they were. Yeah. And I couldn't actually find a definitive cause of death for Catherine, whether it was strangulation like the others Mm or uh, because of the cleaners that she'd been injected with. I think most sources said it was strangulation. Mm Mm-hmm. That torture was just prolonged. Yeah. And so just three days after these three bodies were found, the seventh victim would be found. This time near... (laughs) I can't say it. I'll say it for you. (laughs) This time time near the... Los Feliz. The Los Feliz off-ramp of the Golden State Highway... (laughs) She would eventually be identified as 28-year-old aspiring actress Jane King, who was last seen on November 9th. Because of the level of decomposition, medical examiners couldn't determine whether or not she'd been tortured or sexually assaulted, but they did manage to determine that she had died from strangulation. Uh, And in response to Jane's murder, a task force was created, initially comprising of 30 officers from the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department and the Glendale Police Department uh, to catch the predator who has now been called the Hillside Strangler. Yeah. It's sad that it took seven murders. I mean, really, though. For, for a task force to be created. Yeah. The task force made little progress, though, and on November 29th, another victim was found. Lauren Wagner was an 18-year-old student living at home with her parents in the San Fernando Valley. She had gone out um, on the night of the 28th, and her parents expected her back by midnight. The next morning, her parents found her car parked across the street from their house with the door ajar. Her father began to knock on neighbors' doors and found that the woman across the street had witnessed her abduction and heard Lauren shout, You won't get away with this. I have many thoughts on this. (laughs) So my initial thoughts were like, why are her parents not bothering until the next morning? But then I remembered it's the 70s. Yeah. And she was and so, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some parents are like, well, yeah, go out, do what you want. Some parents aren't. Like, like you say, she's 18. A woman across the street witnessed her abduction and heard her shout, you won't get away with this. And didn't do anything about the it. What the fuck was going on? Yeah. Even if you're not going to call the police, y- go to the neighbor's house. And say, yeah, run across the road. Is this normal? Wake them up. Yeah, like, what the hell is going on? Uh, that's I baffling just... to me. And that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you're seeing someone get abducted. You can identify that it's an abduction. Like, yeah, that should be cause for alarm. Mm. Yeah, and especially if she she's clearly shouting. Mm-hmm. She's making a scene to attract attention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Lauren's body was found by hikers in the hills near Mount Washington. Where is that? I don't really know. Okay. Somewhere near LA. Yeah. It's a big it's it's a big hill near LA. Wait, I'll find out. You keep talking. Um <laughs> She had the same marks to her wrists, ankles, and neck as the other victims. Her cause of death was determined to be strangulation, but she also had burn marks to her hands, indicated that she'd been tortured as well. Um, Mount Washington is in fact not a mountain, it is a neighborhood. In so it's not a big hill no it's not a big hill and now I've just lost it again where did it go it's on the west no east side uh, northeast LA in the San Rafael Hills Um, on December 14th the body of 17 year old Kimberly Martin was found in a deserted lot near the Los Angeles City Hall beautiful building by the way um Kimberly was a sex worker, and like most women in L.A. during this time, she feared for her safety, and so she had signed up with an escort agency, thinking that it would be safer than working on the streets alone. But unfortunately, Bianchi and Bono placed a call to the agency on December 9th from a public payphone, and Kimberly was the girl who was sent. Kimberly had been tortured, um, and she had electrical burns on her hands and had been strangled. When the police investigated the apartment um, to which Kimberly had been sent, they found it vacant and broken into. Uh, after Kimberly's murder, uh, Bianchi and Bruno took a couple of months off from torturing and murdering women in L.A. Because even serial killers don't like to work over Christmas. Of course not. But on February 17th, 1978, a helicopter pilot spotted an orange Datsun uh, which had been pushed over the cliffs uh, in the hills near the Osan- no, near the Angeles Crest Highway. Yep. I don't know what... Anything to add? Uh, it's up... Okay. I'm assuming it's up in, um, in and around Angeles National Forest. Uh, police attended the scene, and in the boot of the car, they found the body of 20-year-old student and waitress Cindy Hudspeth. Uh, she had the same ligature marks on her wrists, ankles, and neck as the other victims. Uh, Cindy had also been raped and tortured. Her body was placed in the boot of the car before it was pushed off the cliff. Um, after Cindy's murder, the murder stopped, uh, not because police had managed to find the killers. They were still scratching their heads at the whole thing. Um, during this period... Kenneth Bianchi was actually trying to join the LAPD. He even had gone on a ride-along with LAPD officers while they were looking for the hillside strangler. When Angelo Buono found out that his little cousin had been associating with the LAPD during the murdering spree, he went ballistic. Um, the pair had attempted to abduct and kill an 11th victim... Um, this went wrong, and the victim got away. We don't really know anything else. Um, and it was following this botched attempt that Bianchi admitted to his cousin that he'd tried to join the LAPD and been on ride-alongs. And so Bono's reaction was to threaten to kill his cousin unless he left LA. 
And in May 1978, Bianchi did just that. Uh, and he relocated to Bellingham in Washington State with his girlfriend, Kelly. Uh, Bellingham is about 20 miles south of the Canadian border. Uh, it's kind of between Seattle and Vancouver. It's the best way to describe <laughs> it, I think. Um, so by all accounts, the cousins kept a relatively low profile for a few months. Um, that is until January 1979, when Bianchi, who is now working as a security guard at a house in Bellingham, lured two women to the property under the pretense of a house-sitting job. 22-year-old Karen Mandick and 27-year-old Diane Wilder were both students at Western Washington University. Uh, and once at the house, Bianchi pushed them down the stairs and strangled both of them. But it soon became clear that without Bono, Bianchi didn't really know what he was doing when it came to clean up and actually, you know, getting away with the whole murder thing. The day after the murders, on January 12th, 1979, police in Bellingham arrested Bianchi for the murders of Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. Bianchi had dropped his California driver's license at the scene. What an idiot. Taylor is sm Taylor's just casually smacking her forehead now. Like, come on. Um, see, this is where you get mad. Yes. <laughs> This is like the um, San Francisco witch killers all over again. Like, you do not leave your name oh, yeah. literally at a crime scene. I am sorry. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a good idea. Duh. But it, it was, well, was good. It also is because it means he was caught. Yes. Um, a background check uh, revealed that Bianchi had been seen near the location of two of the Hillside Stranglers victims' homes. Not sure which victims, but, you know, he'd been seen. Uh, not only this, he had murdered the two women in Washington in the exact same way he and Bono had killed the California victims. Bit of a tip so, off there. You know. All roads lead to Bianchi. Yeah. Uh, Bianchi admitted that he and Bono had attempted to kidnap and murder Catherine Laurie, or Catherine Laurie Baker, uh, but had abandoned the attempt when they learned she was the daughter of Peter Laurie, and therefore it was likely that she would be missed. You know, she wasn't. It would be noticed if she went she, missing. She didn't fit. She didn't fit the profile of the first couple of victims. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, the the less dead. Mm -hmm. Um. So this was when police finally discovered that it was the Hillside Stranglers, plural, not just a singular serial killer. Uh, the pair were tried separately, with Bianchi's trial beginning first. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity and claimed that he had multiple personality disorder, now referred to as dissociative identity disorder. Uh, Bianchi claimed his other personality, Steve Walker, had committed the murders. However, police found that Steve Walker was the name of a man whose identity Bianchi had tried to steal while living in L.A. Because suck on he that, motherfucker. <laughs> He clearly wasn't the brains behind the operation, no, was he? No, he was not. I actually, um, I've seen some of the footage of him as Steve, and it's just like, dude, stop. This is not drama camp. You are not doing yourself any favors. Yeah. 
Um, police were suspicious of Bianchi's claims that his alter ego, Steve, had committed the murders. And so a court psychologist um, observed him. When the psychologist told Bianchi that in genuine cases of dissociative identity disorder, there tends to be at least three alters, Bianchi immediately created another named Billy. Uh, Bianchi had previously tried to set up his own psychiatrist's office using a false degree. Why? As you do. And when police searched his home in Bellingham following his arrest, they found numerous books on personality disorders and some on how to fake multiple personalities. Well, there you go right there, eh? Yeah. Also, I want to know what these books were. Just, yeah. Just... Out of sheer curiosity. Like, who wrote that book? The police and prosecutors all concluded that it was a sham to try and get away with murder. And Bianchi eventually agreed to plead guilty and testify against Bruno in exchange for leniency. I mean, that's the first smart thing he's done. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> having said that, here we go. Although he agreed to testify against his cousin, Bianchi was as uncooperative as possible during the trial and contradictory at every turn in an attempt to sabotage his cousin's trial because the case against Bono was largely built on Bianchi's testimony. In 1980, during his trial, Bianchi began a relationship with a woman named Veronica Compton, who has been described in uh, various sources as a, quote, serial killer groupie. Now, you know, it's a thing. We all know the type. Um, yeah. Um, this wouldn't be long after Ted Bundy either, would it? No, right around, yeah. So. Yeah, uh, so they were a thing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So Bianchi convinced Compton to commit a murder in L.A., and make it look like the Hillside Strangler so that with he and Bono in custody, it would look like police had gotten the wrong men and that the Strangler was still on the loose. Compton lured a woman into a motel room and attempted to strangle her, but the woman escaped. And Good. Compton was arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned, serving 23 years. Good. He was released in 2003. Uh, we don't really know much else about her she kind of is a bit of a footnote in the case mm -hmm. and i guess we can only presume her crimes were preventing the course of justice and attempted murder before she attempted to kill this woman at the motel compton testified in bianchi's defense uh telling the jury of quote vague false tale about the crimes in order to exonerate bianchi uh, what that was, we don't know. <laughs> um, she also, I also read that she um, she had planned to buy a mortuary with another serial killer um, for the purposes of necrophilia. Cool. Just that tells you everything you need to know about this woman. Just great people in this story all around. Love it. Yeah. Arrgh. Uh, okay. Um, uh, Bianchi ultimately pled guilty to the murders of Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder in Washington 
and five of the murders in L.A. He received six life sentences and was imprisoned at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, uh, southeastern Washington. Uh, then Bono's trial began. And like we said, the case against Bono was largely based on Bianchi's testimony. Deciding that Bianchi was an unreliable and uncooperative witness, the case's original prosecutors moved to dismiss all charges against Bono and set him free. Cool. That sounds like a good idea. Right? Great. But the presiding judge, uh, Ronald M. George, refused to release Bono and reassigned the case to the California Attorney General's office. In the end, more than 400 witnesses would testify against him. Damn. Bono's trial would become the longest in American legal history, uh, lasting two years from November 1981 to November 1983. Don't know if that's been overtaken. I think it still stands as the longest trial. Um, the, com the jury convicted Bono on nine counts of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. With Judge George commenting he felt a death sentence would have been the appropriate punishment. Quote, Angelo Buono and Kenneth Bianchi slowly squeezed out of their victims their last breath of air and their promise of a future life. And all for what? The momentary sadistic thrill of enjoying a brief perverted sexual satisfaction and the venting of their hatred for women. If ever there was a case where the death penalty is appropriate, this is the case. That's strong words from a judge. Mm -hmm. I tend to agree with um, him in this case. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the death penalty was taken off uh, the table for Bianchi. Uh, that was the leniency mm -hmm. for testifying against his cousin was life rather than death. And California um, didn't have the death penalty at this point. They had abolished yeah, it, right? And yeah, or is there a moratorium on it in California? Or there may have been a moratorium. It was something like it was, it was not happening at this point in, in history. Yeah. Um, and Bianchi was uh, tried in, in Washington, Washington yeah. as well because that's where he committed the last two murders. Because, yeah, I was confused. I was like, why is he in Washington when they commit the crimes in California? Then when I actually read into the case properly, I was like, oh... Um. Because, yeah, he then went up north. Yeah. Um, so while he was in prison, Angelo Anthony Bono Jr. married Christine Kazuka, um, a supervisor at the California State Employment Development Department. Um, he died of a heart attack at the age of 67 at the... Calipatria State Prison in California on September 21st, 2002. Five years later, in 2007, 20-year-old Christopher Bono, Angelo Bono's grandson, shot his grandmother, Mary Castillo, in the head. Mary was Bono's ex-wife and mother of Christopher's father. According to reports, Christopher had no idea as to the true identity of his grandfather until 2005. After murdering his grandmother, Christopher ended his own life by shooting himself. So, yeah, and we don't we don't know a lot about um, Bruno's life. We know he's married a few times and had multiple children, and eventually those grandchildren. Mm -hmm. But 
his early life was a bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, same with the Kenneth Bianchi. We don't know a lot about their relationships. Um, anyway, 69-year-old Kenneth Bianchi continues to serve his sentence in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. I just like saying that. <laughs> Walla Walla. It's a beautiful city. I went there last year. It's very pretty, nice food, amazing sweet shop with like really nice ice cream. Had a really nice lunch there. So highly nice recommend a visit to Walla Walla. Don't go see that just scumbag Bianchi. No. In 2018, Bianchi applied for parole but was rejected by the Sacramento Parole Board. Uh, his next chance to apply will be in 2025. So this is the bit where I got confused as well because he's in prison in Washington, but it's the Sacramento Parole Board, which is obviously Northern California. Oh, yeah. oh that's interesting. Um, Maybe it's... So that, is it like a joint parole board of the two states? That's what I was thinking because he had victims in both states that maybe it's um, like a joint thing or like both have so to approve or something. Yeah. I suppose, like, if you go from, like, southern Washington, where Walla Walla is, and, like, southern California in L.A., Sacramento, near the middle? Uh, Maybe a little further south than the middle, but, yeah, close-ish. Obviously, Oregon's in the middle, but, you know. Um, But, yeah, well, I mean, Sacramento is the capital of California, so. Oh, yeah. That's probably why that's there. I like my theory. (laughs) Split the difference. Um, As well as being one of the Hillside Stranglers, Bianchi is also a suspect in the Alphabet Murders, which were three brutal child murders, which took place between 1971 and 1973 in Rochester, New York. And they were named the Alphabet Murders because the victims' first and last names had the same initial, and they were found in an area which also started the name of which also started with the same initial. So the first victim, uh, Carmen Colon, was found in the village of Churchville near Rochester. The second victim, Wanda Walkowitz, was found in the town of Webster. And Michelle Main- Mainzer? Mm-hmm. M- Michelle Mainzer? Mainzer, yeah. Was found in Macedon. So... He is a suspect in that, and that remains unsolved to this day. And um, we will be digging into those murders uh, in an upcoming Patreon episode, correct? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. So if you would like to hear about those, um, go check out the Patreon page, um, and they'll yeah. that will be arriving shortly. Um, so... Yeah. With all that said, that is the case of the Hillside Stranglers, uh, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono. Wow. Oh. Um, there isn't really a lot you can say that we haven't already said. Yeah. Um, Basically. It is. It's, it annoys me. It's another 70s serial killer case where the police just didn't give a fuck about half the victims because yeah like it shouldn't have taken it shouldn't have taken that long for the police to catch on 
being like, oh, something really wrong is happening here. Like, yeah. And, <sighs> and obviously we hate victim blaming, but even like women like, um, uh, was it Kimberly Martin? You know, women were taking every step they could to make themselves safer. Yeah, exactly. And that's still, they still couldn't keep themselves safe. And that, that is just awful as well. Yeah. I mean, and all of it's awful, but yeah, the, the there was literally no place to hide. Yeah. And like, two. from what I've heard, um, like everyone was terrified. Like it, this is yeah. one of those cases where like you just, it, there was a mysterious monster on the loose killing yeah. people and the police had no idea who it was and the public knew that. And so, yeah, like, and then, hey, guess what? It's two monsters and yeah, they have no regard for thing. human life whatsoever. So, like, yeah, it's right. terrifying. Yeah. Have you seen... um you know, like obviously millennials are killing everything and the people who write these articles don't seem to understand what age group millennials actually are. Yes. But I saw when it's like um, millennials are killing the serial killer business. Oh, I saw that recently too. Because um, like obviously the golden age, for lack of a better term, was sort of the, the 60s to the 80s. Mm-hmm. And now... Like, our age group just don't open the door to anyone. Good. Unless we're, like, expecting something. Um, and, yeah, a lot less serial killers about, apparently. I mean, I'm okay with having killed that industry. I oh yeah disagree with the fact that millennials are killing, like, things like mayonnaise. And that's one of the most mayonnaise recent... Mayonnaise is boring as fuck. I like mayonnaise. I like it when it's mixed in with something that actually has taste. I mean... It's fine. Oh no. Sorry, I just hate mayonnaise. Oh no. Look, we stick the some thing. garlic and some chili in there. I have some specific history with mayonnaise that most people will not have. But um, when I was a kid, my parents only bought Miracle Whip, which is not mayonnaise. It's a, a tangy mayonnaise like spread. But when I was growing up, they told me it was mayonnaise. And every time I'd have mayonnaise at other people's houses or on like field trips when you get like a brown bag lunch with like a sandwich with a little mayonnaise packet in the bag, I'd be like, wow, this mayonnaise tastes different than the ones we have at our house. <laughs> Literally, I was probably 14 or 15 before I realized they were different things. And I was so <laughs> mad at my parents. I was like, you lied to me. For years, <laughs> you told me that this was the same thing. And they didn't care. They were like, sucks for you for being too dumb to figure it out. Like, they're like, I, I don't know what to tell you. And so I, ever since then, have made it my mission to enjoy mayonnaise. <laughs> so if you had that experience with mayonnaise, I think you'd like it too. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> <sighs> Hello. I'm sorry, I just have no comeback. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 
Friday afternoon revelations about my weird fucking life. <laughs> it's okay. Next time we'll talk about how I didn't like thought I didn't like chicken until I was twenty one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Oh, thank you goodness. all so much for listening please let us know what you think about the case um you can find us on social media square mile of meta the podcast we're on instagram join our facebook group and if you have a minute to spare please rate us on your podcast app we'd love a five-star review we are greedy when it comes to stars and it helps us reach so many more listeners yeah um because we just you know we want more of you guys uh, we want to all be yeah. friends and, and hold hands across the world. And, you know, looking at our listenership, there's people in the UK, in the US, in New Zealand, in France, and in Australia, Australia in Germany, Germany. Um, Sweden, and, and Norway and stuff. So, like, you're literally everywhere. So let's all hang out together, please. And, and bring your friends. And hey, if you have a friend you think might like the podcast, like, go text them this episode or your favorite episode and say, hey, you should listen to this because these people are crazy. And one of them didn't know what mayonnaise was until they were a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll hook them, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of them has a crazy chicken rev revelation for the next episode. Yeah, it's like cliffhanger. So. And <laughs> You, uh, Taylor, is writing the next episode. Oh, so I'll have to put that in. <laughs> so you have to find a way for me to... You have to find like, a nice segue for that. We've already established we don't do segues. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we don't need them. <laughs> we find our ways anyway. Oh, Christ. Yeah. Do yeah, we ever. So anyway. Exciting chicken story next yes. episode. So text... If we remember. <laughs> text your friends and, and get them to... To come hang out with us here in the land of crazy. Um, and as always, if you would like to go a step further, um, you can become a patron of the show for as little as $1 per month, which is about 75p. Um, and uh, you can also pay in your local currency. So it's, it's super easy. Um, you'll see the costs for each tier in your local currency when you go to the Patreon page. Um, all patrons get regular episodes a day early and, uh, starting at $5 per month and up, you get extra bonus content like minisodes and bonus episodes and, uh, you know, little gifties in the mail and fun stuff. So check it out. Um, patreon.com slash square mile of murder. Uh, and all this stuff will be in the show notes or you can go to our website, square mile of murder dot calm i think that's everything yeah okay. thank you all thanks so much we'll see you next week yeah bye, bye.